so good to be with you guys. If you have a Bible, uh, open up to Acts chapter 4. Uh, whether you're here with us in the parking lot or if you're parked on your couch at home, we are glad that you are with us this morning. And listen, if, if you're not yet a Christian, uh, we are so glad uh, that you're here. Just know that you are seen this morning. Um, and we're going to do the best job that we can to explain who Jesus is and, and why he matters. But you are welcome here. You belong here. You have a place here uh, if you're not yet a Christian this morning. Um, we are currently three weeks into the final installment uh, of our Kingdom Trilogy, right? We started with Kingdom Kids, which was almost three years ago. Uh, and then uh, we just finished uh, Kingdom Family. And now we are in a series called Kingdom Come. If you're a Star Wars fan, this is Return of the Jedi. Only it's not the return of the Jedi, it's the return of Jesus. To quote another uh, famous trilogy, it's the return of the king, and it's the return of his kingdom. And to do that, we are looking at the book of Acts. And each week as we examine the snapshots and the stories and the themes found in the book of Acts, we've been asking these questions. First... What would Ventura County look like if Jesus were king? And second, what should the church look like since Jesus is king? And maybe a little bit more specifically, what should our lives look like since Jesus is king? And this morning we are going to be answering the question, what would our prayer look like if Jesus were king? This morning we're going to look at Acts uh, chapter 4 verse 23 through 31, and I'll be teaching from the uh, New International Version this morning. It says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed." They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Church, this is God's holy word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for this book of Acts, this record of the church. And Lord, I believe that you have so much to teach us from these stories, so much to teach us, Lord, about your kingdom and your kingship. And Jesus, I ask this morning that through the preaching of your word that you would be put on display, that you would be magnified and exalted as we, as we study your word and your truth this morning. I ask that you would anoint my mouth to preach and teach in a way that is exalting of the name of Jesus and edifying for the church. 
And we ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Before the triumph of Apollo 11, the mission control team had to endure the crisis of Apollo 1. This was a mission that never made it off the ground. I recently, just a, a, a week and a half ago, I watched a documentary that uh, told the story of the control team that monitored and assisted every moment of every lunar mission from launch to landing and back again. And during Apollo 1, pressure from government officials and rushed production of the Saturn V rocket led to a tragic launch pad fire that sadly took the lives of three astronauts. And after that horrific incident, uh, a meeting was called with every engineer and every team member, all the directors, and each person was told to go back to their office and write the words tough and competent on their chalkboard. They needed to remember that even though they were shaken, they were strong enough, they were tough enough to withstand this tragedy, and they were competent enough to make sure that it never happened again. What they needed was confidence in crisis. Those words, tough and competent, remained on every chalkboard throughout the duration of the entire Apollo, uh, the Apollo program. And in the film, this documentary, uh, NASA director Chris Kraft said that had it not been For the Apollo 1 disaster, man would never have set foot upon the moon. Why? Because crisis reveals character. How we respond in crisis reveals where our priorities truly truly lie. Crisis unveils what matters to us. It draws our attention to what is most important. And in our text Before us this morning, we have a picture of how the church responds in moments of crisis. Up until this point in the short life of the church, things have been going pretty well. I like to think of the book of Acts as a a well-made documentary that captures the spiritual revolution of Christianity as it sweeps across the ancient world. It's the story of how a few spirit-filled men and women bravely changed the course of history by daring to bring a new message of hope to a world of hostility. These men and women are called the church. Their message is called the gospel. It's the good news of redemption and salvation found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Acts is a story of struggle, of bravery, of forgiveness, of sacrifice, imprisonment, power, hope, life, disruption. There's so much depth to this book. And the craziest part about the book of Acts, the craziest part about this story is that it's not over. This narrative of the gospel and the church is still being played out from Judea and Samaria all the way to Ventura and Oxnard and Camarillo and Ojai. It continues with you. It continues with me. It continues with us, the church. We see in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus, in his final words to the disciples, promises that the Holy Spirit would empower the church to bear witness to his life, ministry, death, and resurrection. In other words, God's kingdom reality would be carried out through his kingdom family, the church. 
And then in Acts chapter 2, we see that promise come to fruition, right? The Holy Spirit falls upon the church at Pentecost, and all this supernatural stuff starts to happen. There's powerful preaching. People are getting healed. The church is starting to develop radical rhythms of community, fellowship, and generosity. There's insane, like insane church growth. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that 3,000 people were added to their number. Can we just stop for a second and think about that? Can you imagine if next Sunday, 3,000 more people showed up to church next week? We would have no idea what to do with that many people. This is insane church growth. And by Acts 3, the spiritual revolution of Christianity is starting to spread like wildfire throughout Israel, right? The trajectory is looking good. But in Acts 4, the crisis comes. The power of Pentecost was met with the threat of persecution. The Sadducees, who were the spiritual rulers of Jerusalem, they catch wind of what's happening and they arrest Peter and John mid-sermon, just plucking them from the stage or wherever they were preaching. And they're brought before the ruling council and they're threatened for preaching about Jesus in public. We don't see from Luke's account in Acts what those threats were specifically, but we can assume that they were very serious because the ruling authorities had the power to take your stuff, your freedom, your loved ones, and even your life if they so determined. In fact, two of the rulers present on this council were actually uh, prominent figures in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Make no mistake, this was a serious threat to the existence of the church. All of a sudden, a church movement that was experiencing great momentum and favor found itself in a moment of great crisis and fear. These believers were badly shaken. How would they respond to this imminent threat? What would the church do? It says, the church prayed. The church prayed. And there are four distinct elements of how the church prayed that I want to bring to our attention this morning. And I firmly believe that these truths can radically shape the way that we approach prayer, both as individuals and as a community of believers. The first thing that I want to look at this morning is that the church prayed immediately. The church prayed immediately. Look at verse 23. It says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and they raised their voices together in prayer. What we see here in the early church is an immediate prayer response to the crisis at hand. The passage doesn't say that the church leadership got together and formed a, a council to, dis, to assess the threat and then, uh, and then propose an, a, a measured response. The passage doesn't say that they uh, all jumped on Twitter with an awesome hashtag and made it go viral. It doesn't say that they made protest signs and stormed the streets of Jerusalem all the way up to the, to the, court, to the gates of the ruling council. It doesn't say that the church leveraged their social or political influence to strong-arm change in the government. They didn't have any influence to start with. The passage simply says that when confronted with unprecedented crisis, the church prayed. When faced with a threat of punishment, even capital punishment, 
when shaken with fear over what would happen, when things were starting to spin out of control, when the world around them was shaking, the church responded immediately in prayer. Under the pressure of persecution, the church prioritized prayer. They didn't pray once all the other options were exhausted. It wasn't like, well, everything else failed, so I guess we should probably try prayer. Their prayer wasn't a last gasp, Hail Mary effort of desperation. It was a first breath cry of dependence upon the living God. When the church was shaken by the circumstances around them, and they had every right and reason to be shaken, prayer was what mattered most. And it's important for us to notice that they didn't merely pray out of necessity. The church prayed out of intuition. They didn't have to think twice about it. They were like, we have a crisis. We are shaken. We need to pray. Their prayer was immediate because it was instinctive. And why was it instinctive? Practices. Remember, we looked at that last week. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. See, the church had a regular rhythm of prayer, and this enabled them to radically respond in prayer during a time of crisis. In other words, what they did before the crisis shaped how they responded in the crisis. In this, we must understand that prayer is not a magic spell that we conjure up when we need it, right? Prayer is a muscle that we train and develop over the course of our spiritual lives, in times of blessing and in times of brokenness, in seasons of prosperity and seasons of scarcity, in moments of comfort and crisis. The Christian is a practitioner of prayer. Like an athlete trains their Uh, their physical being to respond in competition, so too does the Christian train their spiritual being to respond under pressure. Every athlete will tell you that it is the habit of physical conditioning and strategic planning that enable them to perform when the pressure is at its peak. And so it is with prayer. So how do you strengthen your prayer life? The same way that you strengthen your body. You use it. The best way to grow in prayer is to pray. I know that sounds so obvious, but it's something that so many of us struggle with. I know I certainly do. Like any kind of exercise, right, the first step is always the most important step. So if you feel like your prayer muscles are weak, if you feel like your, your, your prayer muscles are like atrophying, I would encourage you to come to our Tuesday night prayer and worship gatherings right there, 6.30, over there in the parking lot. It's like a prayer gym, right? It's a place where we pump spiritual iron and exercise the practice of prayer every single week. We do the exact thing that the church in Acts was doing. We gather to praise God. We gather to intercede for our church and for our community. Of the, like, 500-ish people that attend our church. About 20 people show up every week to pray. That's less than 5% of our church that shows up to pray on Tuesday nights. And look, I get it, right? Some of us have young kids. Some of us are single parents. Some of us live farther away. COVID is still around 
What I'm not saying, I'm not saying if you don't come to prayer every Tuesday night, there's something wrong. Although it would be awesome if more people showed up on Tuesday night. What I am saying is that if we call ourselves Christians and we are not praying, then something is definitely wrong. Something is wrong. If our default response is to post on social media instead of pray to God, then something is is wrong. If we are more keen to hear the voice of pundits than we are the voice of God, then something is wrong. If we are so busy with our career or friendships or family that we don't make time or space to come before God in prayer, then something is wrong. What this passage reveals is that as Christians, we must make prayer a priority. Why? Because priorities produce habits, habits produce rhythms, and rhythms produce instinct. But when we pray is just the beginning. That's the second thing that I want to look at this morning is that the church prayed honestly. It says again in verse 22 that they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. If immediately is when we pray, then honestly is how we pray. Notice that uh, Peter and John, they don't make any attempt to sugarcoat what had happened. They're not trying to package things in an easily digestible way. They were real and vulnerable about the threats that face the church, and the church responds by praying. I think praying to God is a lot like a needy child coming to their parent, right? When my, when my daughter is, uh, is shaken, when she's hurt or if she's afraid of something, she doesn't like send me a text message or an email saying, oh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, to bo- I don't want to bother you. I don't want to inconvenience you. But if you maybe just have like a couple minutes, then maybe, maybe you could help me out with this thing that I need. No, she doesn't do that. This is how my daughter gets my attention when she's shaken. Dada! Dada! And then whatever it is that's bothering her, whatever it is that she needs. Dada, help! Dada, boo-boo! She doesn't try to hide her tears or her fears from me. All that she needs to do is cry out in her time of need, and I will respond to her. And that's exactly what we see the church do in verse 24. It says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. The word that Luke uses for voices here is the word phona, which is where we get phone. And it's meant to invoke the idea of the sound that a musical instrument makes, specifically a horn. And so we can assume that this was not a quiet or timid prayer. It was a loud, real, vulnerable, and honest prayer. Jesus once told a tale of two prayers. One man who is a Pharisee offers a prayer that is dripping with superficial rhetoric, while another man, a publican or a tax collector, simply beats his chest and cries out to God for mercy. And Jesus said that God answered the prayer of the publican instead of the rhetorical prayer of the Pharisee. That parable reveals that God is far more concerned about the authenticity of our prayers than the articulation of our prayers, right? God is not your ninth grade English teacher. God doesn't listen to our prayers and go, wow, Brian, that was, that was a really great and well-constructed prayer. Very eloquent. Great intro. 
Nice use of similes and metaphors. Nice conclusion. That was A-plus work. That is not the way that God treats our prayers. God values the real, honest, vulnerable prayers of his children. Some of the best prayers in the Bible are the ones that are wrought with emotion. I think about the Psalms and the way that David cried out to the Lord when he was in distress. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't nicely packaged. It was just David crying out to God. And I really believe that for many of us, what is standing in the way, what's standing between us and a radical life of prayer is actually honesty. So many of us think that we need to uh, be a certain way or sound a certain way before God. A lot of us feel like we need to clean ourselves up or put on our Sunday best before we talk to God, that somehow we're too messed up or broken for God to listen to us, let alone speak to us. For some of us, it feels almost impossible to be raw and open before the Lord. Maybe that's you today. What you need to hear is that God is big enough and strong enough to handle your emotions. He's not scared of your anger. He's not put off by your doubts. He's not awkwardly weirded out by your shame. After all, God knows you more intimately than you even know yourself. He is intimately acquainted with your emotions. So when you come before him in prayer, bring your anger, bring your fear, bring your passion, bring your joy. He actually wants it. If God has to choose between your messy, real emotions or your fake, eloquent words, I'm here to tell you that God is going to choose your messy, real emotions every single time. So when you pray, pray honestly. But is it emotion alone that drives our prayers? And that's the third thing that I want us to look at this morning is that the church prayed biblically. If immediately is when we pray, and honestly is how we pray, then scripture is what we pray. Not that every prayer has to be a word-for-word recitation of scripture, but the Bible does play a critical role in forming our prayers. We see this demonstrated by the early church. The church in Acts, they were well aware of the circumstances that surrounded them, but they were also well aware of the one who was with them. They might have been threatened by the Roman authorities, but they served a higher authority. How did they know this? How were they so confident of this? Because of what they learned about God through Scripture. Remember, practices. They had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching of the Word. They had devoted themselves to the practice of studying Scripture. What they had learned about God shaped the way that they prayed to God. But Scripture did more than just orchestrate their words. It orchestrated their hearts. Look at how they pray. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This isn't some kind of like perfunctory salutation. This was essential. It was an essential reminder of God's authority, his sovereignty, his kingship. He's the God of creation. That's what they're reminding themselves of. And then in verse 25, it says, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. What this is is a biblical reminder that God is not surprised by hardship, 
nor is he silent in hardship. He spoke through King David the things that would concern the opposition of the world to the life and the message of Jesus, which is the Lord's anointed one. He is the God of revelation. In verse 27, they pray, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. This is a reminder of the unstoppable power of the gospel. The the authorities had attempted to silence the good news of Jesus by crucifying him on a cross, but God used the cross to bring salvation to the world. He is the God of determination. What we see is that the church needed every ounce of these biblical truths to face the crisis before them. They needed to be moved from, cur- uh, from fear to courage, from anxiety to authority. They needed boldness. They needed strength. They needed to remember who was in control. They needed to remember his will. What we see is that when we pray according to the word of God, we also pray according to the will of God. This is so crucial for us to understand because it can be so uh, easy for our hearts to fall out of alignment with God. It can easily it can be easy for us to become out of sync with the heart of God. A while ago, I found myself in a place where... Um, I had just grown frustrated with my faith. Specifically, I was frustrated that I wasn't hearing from God. I think a lot of us maybe have been there before. I just wasn't hearing from the Lord. I know people around me, they were hearing from the Lord very clearly, and I wasn't. And I remember asking God, I said, God, why aren't you speaking to me? God, why won't you just speak to me? Be careful, by the way, when you ask God things like that. Because he did speak to me. And I remember very clearly what he said. He said, Brian, why would you expect to hear what I'm saying if you haven't listened to what I've already spoken in my word? That'll preach. And so I opened my Bible. I started to read God's word more regularly. And it wasn't like all of a sudden I could hear the audible voice of God. But as I began to engage with Scripture, my view of God started to get bigger. And so my prayers started to get bigger because my wants and my desires started to line up with God's will. And what I learned is that there's tremendous power when the rhythm of our prayers start to come into sync with the rhythm of God's heart. When what we pray for begins to align with what God is doing and what he wants to do in the world. The power of prayer is not found in the emotion that we pray with. The power of prayer is found in the person that we pray to. And that is why the Bible is so important for the prayer life of the Christian. To read, study, and commit scripture to memory. Scripture increases our view of God and it aligns our hearts to the will of God. The word of God expands our expectancy. And that's the fourth thing that I want us to look at as we examine this prayer, is that the church prayed expectantly. If immediately is when we pray, and honestly is how we pray, and Scripture informs what we pray, then expectancy is why we pray. In prayer, our motivation is not that God expects us to pray to Him, but rather it is that we trust that God will listen 
to us. We don't pray out of obligation. We pray out of anticipation. Earlier, I mentioned how my daughter uh, approaches me with honesty and vulnerability, but she also approaches me with expectancy. She's my child. There's relationship there. We have a track record. So when she cries out to me, she trusts that I'm listening to her. Even if I'm in the other room, she cries out expecting that I am going to respond. She anticipates my response, and therefore, she's not afraid to make her requests known. The church in Acts prayed because they expected God to listen. They expected God to move, and they anticipated that he would intervene. But what is so interesting about this story is where they expected God to move and how they expected God to intervene. Look at their request in verse 29. They pray, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. First, they ask the Lord to consider their threats. And many of us resonate with this part of the prayer. Like, God, consider my situation. Consider my circumstance. Be aware of my struggle, Lord. They expected God to listen. And they expected God to move. But what's fascinating is that it's not a petition for deliverance out of their situation. What they pray for is boldness and courage within their situation. It says, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They expected God to move within them. Often, we ask God to move in all kinds of different places. God, move in this city. God, move in our youth. God, move in this nation. And there's nothing wrong at all with praying those kinds of prayers, but how often do we ask God to move within us? How often do we ask God to move through us in those places? Yes, God does work around us sometimes. Sometimes he even works in spite of us, but more often than not, God chooses to work through us. This is exactly what the early church prayed for, not to be removed from their circumstance, but to be empowered for their circumstance. And then they ask God to intervene. In verse 30, they say, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Their expectation is not that God will intervene with vengeance or violence or destruction or force or even political subversion which is honestly what I would have prayed for probably, but rather through miracles, through signs and wonders. They asked God to intervene by healing. They asked God to be merciful. What they're saying is, God, you are mighty and powerful. Do what you're going to do through us in your name. Their prayer was, Lord, let your kingdom come in us and through us. And we can learn something here. We learn that our expectancy is that God is gonna be who he is, and accomplish what he does for the sake of his kingdom, both in our hearts and in our world. And friends, this is how we ought to pray. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So what was the result of their prayer? It says in verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they they were meeting was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God's tangible presence filled the room and every single person within it. The room was shaken and they were filled with boldness. Their prayer was answered. And a church that was profoundly shaken by fear was powerfully shaken in the presence of God. But God's shaking presence did not result in fear or cowardice. It resulted in great courage. Why? Because of the gospel. They knew that for anyone, by trusting in Jesus, you can approach God boldly. Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection from the dead enables you to stand before God and have a relationship with God. You can talk to God with confidence and with boldness. If you don't know Jesus today, if you are not yet a Christian, the reality is that you have every reason to be shaken. But the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be. Why? Because of the cross, Jesus was shaken by the one thing that could truly destroy you. Your sin, your guilt, and your shame. And all you need to do is put your trust in him. That doesn't mean that your world will stop shaking. In fact, the truth is that your world and our world will never stop shaking. Even scientists will tell you that eventually our planet will crumble. It's an inevitability. But the hope of the gospel is that there is something and someone greater than our crumbling little rock. Although the kingdom of earth might be shaking, we don't have to be shaken because there is a different kingdom an unshakable kingdom with an unshakable king. And his kingdom is what our world needs to see, perhaps now more than ever. What does Ventura County need to see? They need to see the kingdom coming. How does that happen? It happens because we pray. We pray like the church in Acts. We ask for boldness. We ask for courage. We ask for the unshakable presence of God to surround us and fill us. So I want to end this morning with that question, what would it look like if Jesus were king? If Jesus were king, it would look like prayer. And what would it look like if we prayed? I think that it would look like boldness in marriages and in parenting. I think that it would look like the healing of political and cultural and racial divisions. I think that it would look like people being encouraged and empowered by the Spirit to share their faith. I think that it would look like the gospel message invading schools and workplaces and coffee shops and restaurants and Surfer's Point. I think that it would look like the church radically stepping out to meet the needs of the broken and the homeless and the hungry. I think that it would look like the spiritual strongholds of depression and anxiety and loneliness being torn down in Jesus' name. I think that it would look like darkness being driven out of our community. I think that it would look like salvation in every workplace, in every school, in every neighborhood. I think that it would look like the name of Jesus being exalted on every street corner and in every home. Friends, I think that it would look like God's kingdom come. Amen? Amen. Lord, this morning we echo 
the cry of the disciples when they said, teach us how to pray. God, teach us how to pray. Show us how to cry out. Lord, I specifically just want to pray for the person here today or online who struggles to be honest with you. Lord, I feel like that is such a, a, a huge stumbling block, a huge obstacle for us when we think about prayer, when we approach prayer, Lord. And so I just ask that you would break down any false idea about our state when we come to you, Lord. You desire for us to come to you as we are, as we are, Lord. And if there is somebody this morning who uh, does not yet know Jesus, I just ask God that you would overwhelm them with your presence, that you would overwhelm them with your undeniable, unmistakable, unshakable presence. It's the hope that we all need to hear, Lord, that even though our world is crumbling and shaking around us, even when it seems like everything is falling apart, Jesus, you are unshakable. Jesus, you are our firm foundation. You are the cornerstone. Lord, I ask that those who do not know you today would experience you by the power of your Holy Spirit. They would experience a new, fresh revelation of who you are. Friends, the, there's prayer teams uh, to the right and to the left over there, people who would love to pray for you. If you're, if you're one of those people that's struggling with honesty, being honest before the Lord, sometimes the best thing that you can do is actually go with someone else. They can lead you before the Lord in an, in an honest way. And if you don't know Jesus, I would just encourage you to find someone with a ministry team shirt, the green shirts. We have an opportunity this morning to stand in the unshakable presence of the living God as we worship. We have an opportunity to do what the disciples did in prayer as we worship God, to cry out to him. So let's do that today, church. Let's cry out to God. Let's be honest. Let's be expectant. Let's worship him now.